let me say that again. Incumbent companies are completely rational to ignore disruptors. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Investing City podcast, where the goal is to get better at investing, business, and life. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It really means a lot. Without further ado, enjoy this episode. The following is presented for informational purposes only and is not investment advice. This information must not be relied upon in making any investment decision. Investing City cannot be held responsible for any type of loss incurred by applying any of the information presented. Furthermore, securities discussed in this podcast may be held by Investing City and members thereof. Thank you. What is up, everyone? Thank you for joining us on the Investing City podcast. And as we do every once in a while, in this episode, we're actually not going to have a guest. So for some of you, you might tune out now, but for others, I think this is going to be a really interesting episode. We're going to go through my latest blog post about innovation. So if you're interested at all in innovation... I suggest you hang around. So we'll get right into it. The reason I wrote this blog post is because I was really reflecting on our investment strategy with Investing City and just making sure that we would serve members as well as possible and just kind of looking through the similar threads over our best and biggest winners over the years. And so kind of thinking about a framework of innovation and how that relates to investment winners. And the first thing is that there are three types of innovation. So this is a framework. It's not necessarily the only framework out there, and it's not necessarily 100% the truth. But I think that for the most part, this is a good way of kind of realizing what reality looks like. And I think it'll be a helpful framework for you to think of. So without further ado, these are the three types of innovation. So the first one we have is sustaining innovation, and this is probably the most popular type. So this is when Apple comes out and releases their new iPhone, and it has three cameras instead of two. And everybody is all excited that they can now have a wide angle and a narrow angle and a normal one. And so that's an example of sustaining innovation, and I think there's definitely a value in it because without sustaining innovation, other companies get farther ahead, and it's obviously a good thing to keep innovating and iterating on your product. Another example of sustaining innovation could be McDonald's bringing back the McRib or something like that. It's an innovation or an improvement on the current situation that kind of continues the same thing. So sustaining, obviously, that means kind of continuing with the same path, but there is a clear improvement. And so that's the first type of innovation, sustaining. The second type is discontinuous innovation. And so the way that we were thinking about this is that it completely changes the way something is done, but it's on the back of a shift in a platform. So let me break that down a little bit. 
Some popular platform shifts that have happened over the years are the shift from desktop to mobile or from on-premise data centers to the cloud or even from pre-internet to post-internet or there's there's just these shifts in the way that things are done and then companies emerge out of these shifts. This is discontinuous because these new companies can create a better value proposition on at least one consumer preference vector, either price or convenience or flexibility. If you think about Amazon, they were competing against big box retailers and they started in one very narrow category, which was books. They figured, okay, we can put a massive selection of books on the internet because Barnes & Noble, Borders, RIP, they cannot compete with us. I mean, they have a limited shelf space and we can basically put an infinite amount of books online that people can buy. So that consumer preference vector is selection, and that was only enabled by a platform shift, or the internet. And Borders and Barnes Noble, they really couldn't compete with that because they were limited by their current paradigm, or their current platform, which was a store. And Amazon utilized the shift from pre-internet to post-internet to really increase one consumer preference vector, which was selection. And as people started buying their books, Amazon obviously realized that they could increase the width and the breadth of their product category offerings. And so they started with electronics and movies. And all of a sudden, they were gaining some scale, which then they leveraged into more discounts and the classic Amazon flywheel really got spinning. So the important part about discontinuous innovation is that there's a platform shift involved with it. So that's what we think of when we're thinking of discontinuous innovators and that's the second category. The third category is disruptive innovators, and this is probably one of the least understood innovation categories, and it was popularized by Clayton Christensen from Harvard Business School, and he really put this on the map. And it's kind of controversial because people use the word disruptive in terms of innovation without actually getting the definition correct. And to some people, this might not be that important. It might be kind of like splitting hairs, but I think it's important because it's really a structural advantage rather than a technological advantage. So let me explain that a little bit. When most people think of disruption, they think of just a big technological breakthrough. Like Uber is disrupting taxis because it has this app or iPhone is disrupting Samsung because I really like the blue bubbles on my text message. It's like this technological advantage 
or maybe even user interface or design or something like that. But disruption is really a structural market advantage because of the definition. So let's actually break down the definition. So a disruptive innovation is when a company either comes in at the low end of a market or it creates a new market altogether because of a low price point. So the common thread of disruptive innovation is a low price point. And this is important because it buys time for the disruptive company to actually disrupt an incumbent company. And this is important because if you have a great technological solution and then you attack an incumbent's main market immediately, there's going to be backlash because these incumbent companies aren't stupid. They're not going to let smaller companies just walk all over them. They're either going to buy them or they're going to come out with a really strong product offering because they have the resources and the people to make that happen. And the important thing with disruptive innovation is when a company can come in and take a different consumer than the incumbents are even worried about. So a popular example, at least right now, would be the brokerage discount war between Robinhood, Schwab, TD Ameritrade. So about five years ago, I think, Robinhood started in their beta phase and they were disrupting the classic brokerage because they were coming in with zero dollar commissions, free commissions, and I'm sure that made some waves with the incumbent brokerages. But here's the thing, Robinhood was targeting a completely different consumer than the big brokerages like Schwab, Fidelity were even worried about. Robinhood was focused on quote-unquote millennials, people that trade stocks a bunch, who really weren't the classic old guard investors that Schwab is targeting. And so think about that. In the past couple weeks, we've seen the big brokerage firms actually cut their commissions to zero. But think about how long that took. Five years, Robinhood had a big lead. Sure, there are other players like M1 Finance, but Robinhood really had traction from being a first mover advantage and that's classic disruption right they came in at the low end of the market you can't get much lower than free and they really created a new market a new type of investor was attracted to robin hood and they had a five-year lead now it's yet to be seen what will happen from here on out, but it really is a good example of disruption because you can just see how much time that disruption bought Robinhood. And if they immediately went to the high end of the market and it was just another brokerage firm out there, they just had a better user interface, but it was still $7 a trade, then all of the brokerage firms would just buy some more designers and they would really get the user interface tightened up, right? Because 
that is way more possible than disrupting their own business, actually cannibalizing their own business, and cutting commissions altogether. I believe TD Ameritrade makes about 22% of the revenues from commissions. So for them to cut to zero, it's actually a big, big deal, right? And so that's why Robinhood has been able to really create this lead. And for five years, they didn't have any competition from incumbents. And so that's the point of innovation. The incumbent companies are focused on their most profitable customers, which makes sense, right? They're focused on the most profitable customers because they're going to make the most money off of them and everything's going to be great. But when a disruptive company comes in at the bottom of the market, those incumbent companies are completely rational to ignore it. Let me say that again. Incumbent companies are completely rational to ignore disruptors. That's because they would make their company less profitable if they actually took them seriously and disrupted their own business model. And if you think of the incentives for management, let's picture the CEO is 58 years old and he has an agreement with his wife that he's going to retire in two years. And he is thinking about the strategy of the company going forward and he's thinking, personally, I'm going to be out of here in two years All I need to do is make sure that the company doesn't fall apart. In these two years, I'm going to get my stock options. Everything's going to be great. Is it really in his best interest to disrupt his own company, cannibalize 22% of his revenue stream before he retires? So it's kind of this incentive model that really prevents an incumbent from challenging a disruptor. And they really have to just rip the band-aid off and that's what is happening to a lot of these brokerage firms and so that is a good definition of disruption thank you robin hood but what i want to talk about is actually our hypothesis on disruption and i think it's a little bit novel and i just want to break that down a little bit So as we mentioned, there's two types of disruption. There's low-end market disruption, and then there's actually when a disruptor creates a new market. And we're going to start with the low-end. So we believe that low-end disruptions are typically a result of business model innovation. So Southwest Airlines is a perfect example of this, and it did a lot of things to really optimize and improve its business model over traditional airline carriers. So for instance, it only selected certain hubs in order to fly to. It only bought one type of aircraft. So it cut down on flight attendant training time and they can get discounts if they're buying one specific type, just a bunch of them. They removed reserved seating, they have free bags, they just did a lot of little things or business model innovation in order to actually come in at the low end of the market. Now, this isn't exactly sustaining innovation because a sustaining innovation would be 
okay, maybe they offer cookies on top of nuts, or maybe they improve the seats a little bit. But there were actually some structural things that Southwest Airlines did in order to become a disruptor. And so we think that is business model innovation in order to disrupt at the low end of the market. And so that's the low end, right? Because the important thing here is a company can't just lower prices and expect to become a disruptor. It just doesn't work that way, right? Because you have competition. If Southwest just came in and they were competing with American Airlines, United, Alaskan, and they just came in and lowered prices. Airlines is such a competitive industry that they wouldn't be making enough money to actually survive. So there has to be some structural advantages, some business model innovation that allows them to actually come in at the low end of the market. You can't just lower your prices and call yourself a disruptor. So that's the low end disruption. For the new market disruption, we believe that that is typically a result of a platform shift. And this is similar to discontinuous innovation, but the key is where the company enters the market. So there's the same shift, there's the same platform shift, but it's where the company enters the market. So let's break that down a little bit. Uber is a company that was a part of discontinuous innovation. It had a platform shift from traditional taxis, not using the internet and all these APIs to Uber actually creating a very good mobile app and using all these APIs, pulling in Google Maps, pulling in credit card processing, and then just making the process that much simpler. But they actually started at the high end of the market. So they started with black car service. And so that's discontinuous innovation, but that's not disruption. Since they started at the high end of the market, that would be considered just discontinuous innovation. But like with Robinhood, they were on the back of the shift from desktop to mobile, but they entered at the low end of the market. So discontinuous and disruptive innovation, at least in the new market segment, they both start with a platform shift, but then it depends on where they enter the market. Robinhood is at the low end of the market, and that created this new market for millennials to trade stocks. Uber went to the high end of the market off the bat, and this was competing with black car service. And if you think about this, I think Netflix is a great example of a new market innovation. So it started out and it catered to a different type of movie watcher, right? You had Blockbuster where you could walk in, get the new releases, and it could be great. But Netflix really utilized one specific consumer preference vector, which was selection. And this is kind of the same thing as Amazon. When they created more selection, even though it wasn't necessarily convenient off the bat, 
because remember, Netflix started with DVDs by mail. And you had this big selection, but you had to wait a couple days to actually get your DVD in the mail. Netflix, the big revelation was the breakthrough and the shift in platform from DVDs to streaming. And they really leveraged this wave of technological progress. And it really allowed them to capitalize on a difference in cost structure. So if you think about Blockbuster, they had to run all of these stores and they couldn't compete with Netflix and their lean cost structure in actually just streaming movies, right? And so that's the important part about disruption. Once again, there's a structural advantage why incumbents can't compete. And it looks silly at first. A disruption looks silly at first. If you think about Netflix, the first type of consumer that they really targeted was a movie buff, right? They had this huge selection of movies that really wasn't, they weren't great movies. And they capitalized on the platform shift to streaming. And then eventually they came up market slowly but surely. And that was solely on the back of the platform shift. And so I want to just talk about discontinuous versus disruptive a little bit more. And we talked about how they're both on the back of a platform shift, but discontinuous goes straight to the high end of the market and disruption goes straight to the low end of the market. The big thing in our investment process is finding discontinuous disruptors. If you can find a company that is moving from the old paradigm to the new paradigm, but is also coming in at the low end of the market, then you've got a really interesting business because it's kind of like a double whammy. The old guard probably isn't taking advantage of the new platform shift, and then they also won't be able to even take you seriously at the low end of the market. So I think one interesting example from our own portfolio is a company like MongoDB. So we've held this company basically since the IPO and it's turned out really well and the company's been expensive for a long, long time, but we believe it's because the company is a discontinuous disruptor. If you think about databases and it's a huge market, first of all. The market is over $60 billion, and the big player is Oracle, right? They have a classic relational database that most people use. They have Postgres, and probably pronouncing that incorrectly, developers, you can hit me up, making sure that I stay accountable. But you have all of these databases that Oracle has done really, really well with. You have Microsoft, MySQL, but Mongo is kind of catering to a different type of developer because they've created this product category of NoSQL databases. So it stands for not only SQL, and it's just a different way to store data. 
With a relational database, you can think of it as kind of an Excel spreadsheet. You have rows and columns, and you can store the data. You can kind of search and filter using this language called SQL. Um, search query language, I believe it stands for. Or you can store data with Mongo's system called NoSQL, which it's a document orientation. So you could store even websites, you could store documents, you could store basically data that isn't as clean as a simple row and column. And what's this done is catered toward a different type of user. So the SQL providers, they look at Mongo and think, oh, that's just going to be a very small piece of the market. And we have these million dollar licenses with big enterprises, so we don't really need to worry about that. Plus, Mongo is capitalizing on this shift, this platform shift from desktop to mobile, from on-premise to cloud, and so a lot of the data isn't as clean as it once was. And so that's why we believe that Mongo is kind of at this intersection of discontinuous and disruption, and we believe it'll be a good company in the long run and so that's kind of what we try to look for, these discontinuous disruptors. One point on this is it's pretty hard to find these companies. A lot of companies will be discontinuous and then they'll see that the real money is made at the high end of the market, so they'll attack the high end of the market right away. So there's nothing wrong with this, but it will be a longer journey because they have to fight off incumbents. Incumbents are going to have some serious backlash to make sure that these companies can't come in and really take away their most profitable customers, right? Because disruptors, incumbents don't even take them seriously because they're either targeting a different consumer or they're just coming in at the low end of the market and it doesn't make sense to cannibalize their own business. So with a discontinuous innovator, if they enter the high end of the market, the big question you need to ask yourself is, does this company have high switching costs? So think about Uber. With their quote-unquote disruptive technology, which remember, disruption is a structural market advantage, it's not just technology, they attacked the high end of the market. And sure enough, taxi companies were revolting you got big backlash, but Uber really slogged their way through that. And obviously, it's become a great company, over $50 billion in market cap, nothing to sneeze at. It's been an absolute great company. I'm not denying that, but it's disrupted a different thing than the taxi companies. Because it's a little bit cheaper than a taxi, but it, it, it created an improvement on the consumer preference vector of convenience, right? If you just open up your phone, click the Uber app, and you can get an Uber in a couple minutes, that is way more convenient than calling up a taxi company. But here's the thing. Taxi companies, and I'm sure some taxi companies are doing this now, they've created a mobile app and made it much easier to order, but Uber has this big brand advantage, like, I wouldn't even know that a taxi company has an app, right? So in that sense, it's really become a huge company 
but it's been a slog because they've had to deal with a lot of backlash from taxi companies since they entered at the high end of the market. But here's where switching costs comes into mind. And this is where it becomes really important because if you think about Uber and Lyft, the switching cost from going from Uber to Lyft is very, very low. You download another app, you put in your credit card again, and you're off to the races. If you are a discontinuous innovator and you're entering the high end of the market, you want to think about your switching costs. And if you think about this from an investor's perspective, if the company is at the high end of the market, they probably will face a lot of competition because that's where the profitable customers are. But if it doesn't have high switching costs, then you'll find yourself probably in a price war because you're just trying to gain market share with your closest competitors. Whereas if you're a discontinuous innovator at the low end of the market or creating a new market, then you basically buy yourself some time to get a farther lead and deepen your moat before competitors are really on your tail. So I want to provide some clarifiers with Uber and with the iPhone. These companies, or I should say product uh, with the iPhone, these products and companies that aren't necessarily disruptive, but they're actually disruptive in a general, bigger sense. So if you think about Uber, there are a lot of people who just Uber and don't even own cars anymore. So if you think about it from that lens, Uber is pretty disruptive to car ownership. And this is where it can be kind of difficult to tell when a company is going to be disruptive. It's kind of easy to put that label in the past or even in the present to kind of understand that a company is a disruptor, but it might be pretty difficult to tell when a company is going to be a disruptor, right? With the iPhone, it came out and it was basically a crazy sustaining innovation. You had this touch screen and all of these new apps, and this was a big, big sustaining innovation And you wouldn't have really even thought that it had the potential to disrupt the desktop. And it really was the catalyst that led to the disruption of the desktop. But in if you were thinking in 2007 that this company, this product was going to disrupt the desktop, you would have been a crazy genius, right? It's it's pretty difficult to actually see what's going to be disruptive, especially if it disrupts a whole different product category. If it's a a sustaining innovation that actually creates a platform shift, then it's pretty difficult to tell what a disruption will be. But when you're looking with a discontinuous innovation, you can kind of see this platform shift happening and these companies are emerging from it. You can kind of tell is a company actually entering the high end of the market or the low end of the market. And it kind of just puts a little thought in your mind of potential competition. So if you believe that the company you're looking at is a discontinuous innovator, they're entering the high end of the market, 
and they have a fantastic management team and switching costs are high and a great sales organization to really get right in there and just beat the competition, then sure, that's a great idea to actually hop on board that company and see them take the high end of the market. However, if you're not too sure that they can beat out competition, then it's probably not a good idea to invest in that discontinuous innovator because you are sure that they'll face a lot of competition. However, if they're entering the low end of the market and just structurally it's really hard for incumbent companies to compete with them on the low end, then it kind of puts a thought in your mind, okay, this might be a real disruptor. So that's kind of how we think about it and it kind of starts with that platform shift and then the high end of the market or the low end of the market and it just allows you to think about potential competition just because of the structural market advantages. So with that, I just want to kind of recap what we've talked about. There's three types of innovation, sustaining, discontinuous, and disruptive Sustaining innovations, they can make for great companies. If a company like Apple can create the iPhone with a sustaining innovation, you should never quite rule them out, but this framework allows you to think about potential competition. So the next type is discontinuous innovation, and that's on the back of a platform shift, either from on-premise to cloud or desktop to mobile. All these different platform shifts companies emerge from and they have a structural advantage because this new platform allows them to do things that the old paradigm companies weren't physically allowed to do. And then the third type is disruptive innovation, and that's when a company either comes in at the low end of the market or creates a new market with a low price point and there's two ways that this is typically done. One is through business model innovation, like we talked about with Southwest Airlines, or another example could be TJ Maxx, or even Walmart in the early days. And this is business model innovation. The second type is when a company creates a new market utilizing a platform shift. So as we mentioned, this is very similar to discontinuous innovators, but they actually come in at the low end of the market, similar to how Netflix was focused on a particular type of consumer, one that Blockbuster wasn't really focused on because it wasn't necessarily the most profitable customer. So this is the framework. Ideally, we look for discontinuous innovators who have high switching costs, or discontinuous disruptors, and that's a central part to our investment strategy. As always, we try to keep an open mind and change our mind when the facts change, but we really think this is a useful example to think about potential competition. And it would be helpful if you have your portfolio holdings and you are a tech investor to actually think about this framework and how it relates to your companies and how it relates to future competition. And with that, we know that there, this is not 100% fact. It's a framework and any framework is just a way to understand reality a little bit better. There will be surely exceptions to the rule, but we think this is a useful framework to think about 
and just to get a little bit better at investing. Before we go, real quick, just want to encourage you to leave a review on iTunes because it allows more people to hear about the Investing City podcast, and we would be eternally grateful. So thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a fantastic day. Thanks again for listening. You can find more information at www.investingcity.org where you can sign up and subscribe for our email newsletter that goes out every Tuesday and Friday. And you can also follow us on basically every social media platform on the face of the earth. And if you're feeling extra generous, please leave us an iTunes review as it really helps us out. And with that, have a fantastic day.